What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. speaking here you're listening to episode 82 of the see here podcast we talk about music related films that's our job that's our role that is what we do you're listening to me on my lovely new akg lyra microphone very very sexy i'm rather quite pleased with this and over in bath is my friend and esteemed colleague mr bernard stickwell hello once again our other esteemed colleague and great friend mr tim merrill is not available but i can promise you that he will be back next month. We'll talk a bit about that at the end of the show. So you might be wondering, what have we got up for you? Well, we've just done an interview with a fellow called Colm Ford, and he is the curator, and he started out this music festival in London called Dock and Roll, and it's also a VOD service. And all they do is music documentaries. So we were made for each other. Our podcast, his music festival, we thought we had to talk to him. So in a minute or two, we will present that interview for you, for your listening pleasure. After that, we'll be back to talk about what will be on next month and about Tim, the prodigal son, returning back to the show after a few months. The second coming is more anticipated than the second Stone Roses album. Oh, well, hang on. The second Stone Roses album didn't tend to go anywhere that was satisfactory for most fans did it <laughs> yeah but it was it was highly anticipated hopefully uh tim will buck that trend yeah exactly yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely the true second coming <laughs> we'll be back after this break with our interview with uh colin ford you're listening to see here episode 82 i had to define myself i think extraordinary an explosion from another planet mysterious unknowable it just rocked Times have changed. I gotta figure out what to do. This is the end. I believe it never stops. We're family, so you know there's nothing that's gonna destroy that. 
playing music. I love it. Punk and DIY punk. A different level of feeling. Bigger than one human being. What we're doing is really healthy. It's about celebrating. A kind of spiritual anarchy. Nobody is the president. And that is where great music exists. Hey man, this is tripping me out. Who's that? Welcome back to episode 82 of See Here Podcast. And Bernie and I have got on the Skypes, I guess the curator, the originator of a film festival that started in London about seven or eight years ago, I think, called Dock and Roll. Welcome to the show, Colm Ford. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being had. We've had many a director on the show before, but I think this is the first time that we've had someone who's run a festival, a music film festival. I mean, this is right up our alley. We do music-related films on this podcast, so um, the fact that you existed meant that we just had to reach out to you. How did you come up with an idea to actually run a music documentary festival? Um, well, I started back in 2013 when I arrived in London from Dublin, where I'm from, and I uh, was just looking for a change of scene I've been working in in Dublin as a film archivist restoration post-production ahead for like 10 years so I just jumped ship on that and I was looking for a similar type of job but in uh, archive collections museum collections and that in London in 2013 and it wasn't a great time to be looking for public service jobs. All of these jobs are kind of paid for by the public purse. So major cutbacks in that scene. So I was kind of at a loose end and reluctant to go into professional post-production. I just was a little long in the tooth for that. So I just decided to put kind of my twin loves of alternative documentary or indie film plus alternative music to good use and to give some basically some joy to these films that normally would only get a London premiere if they're lucky and be forced straight to DVD and they wouldn't get any type of screening outside of the capital. So we, myself, my partner, Vanessa, did couple of months research to figure out if there was a market there and how we could access it and we threw ourselves into it because it was a bit of a gamble to say the least because we had zero contacts in the art scene in UK and had no prior experience of screening a film anywhere or organising anything beyond a, a dinner party at home so uh, it was uh, shot in the dark it took a while to get going it took a good two years two editions to, to gain some traction and to spread from our initial one cinema in Hackney to now last year nine cinemas across London so yeah we just kind of dove into it with a, a combined passion of just like alternative music from all the spectrums from jazz all the, all the way across to metal and everything in between you know now I know that here in Melbourne every year for the uh, Melbourne International Film Festival they always get someone to curate a subsection devoted to music documentaries for as part of MIF. has the BFI done anything similar like that yeah they actually had a thing called Sonic Cinema, I think, for their uh, London Film Festival. But that's a mixture of short films and dramatic films, uh, fiction films, and some music docs as well. So it's got a mixed bag of about seven or eight titles. And yeah, we were aware of, of them being on the scene, but you know, they're a whole other other sphere, to say the least. Having said that, we did start, we opened our third edition of our festival in the BFI South Bank Cinema. So that was a nice little lag up we got from them. We opened with the film on Gregory Porter, their world premiere of the uh, film of the jazz singer and had a great double Q&A, sold out double 
screen once sold out opening night. So that was great. But the BFIs, yeah, obviously they have their eye on, I think, 200 films over that festival. So, you know, it's only a small part of the overall thing that they do. And weakens a lot of these festivals around us that existed before we started. They always had seven to eight films, you know, with premieres. And we've just kind of pulled the carpet from one of them on that because of our growing in strength. So Raindance, Sheffield, Glasgow Film Festival, Edinburgh, Cambridge, they've all been hit drastically by us stealing their UK premieres. So, you know, we've made friends and enemies to our success. <laughs> it's the enemies that lets you know that you've become successful. Absolutely, yeah. It took me a while to understand that. Yeah, but definitely. I, I never actually had any enemies that I was aware of prior to doing this, so they came quick and fast. <laughs> they came quick and fast on the third edition when you started to, to, to screen at like four or five cinemas across London, and we broke out of London into Brighton and Liverpool initially. So now we have 14 city editions outside of London. So yeah, they disgruntled, you know, ruffled a lot of feathers in the established dinosaur <laughs> scene of festivals. It's, uh, yeah. it's a cutthroat business, isn't it? <laughs> oh, man, to, 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 it is, to get your hands on on, on, uh, on premieres, yeah. If you don't have a premiere, you get no press, so that's the end of the story on that. You know, we learned the hard way, you know, and obviously our enemies, some of them are now working with us, so <laughs> yeah, keep them close. <laughs> a lot of a lot of the, the cinemas that we started out with, they themselves would have had programmed, you know, music docs across there. Maybe some of them have like 25 different uh, branches across the UK and they would have had regular music documentaries, maybe not as left to field as stuff as we program, but they would have had stuff not in a regular strand, but they programmed down again. So they themselves, you know, were eyeing us up and started to uh, take our programming and, and throw it across their branches. So we, you know, our own success started to cannibalize our program the our, our own partners so you know it's, it's definitely cut throughout you know <laughs> <laughs> has doc and roll been able to provide grants for filmmakers or is it purely just about giving them an exhibition leg up no unfortunately we don't have anywhere near that kind of funding or anything in that realm like i mean those that type of funding usually is comes from a public body and we'd be facilitated by a festival but we don't have that kind of pu- public funding you know like the other bigger bigger ones would have like sheffield mm-hmm. Or Edinburgh, or the, or the BFI themselves, which is all lottery money at the end of the day. It's all coming from the same public purse, you know. So, but we don't, yeah. we don't, we are nowhere near established in that front. Like we're only having our eighth edition next November, so those that hand out those kind of grants would uh, be at least twenty years old in in their being established, you know. No, so we we just kicked the door open for a lot of left to field filmmakers. Most of them are first time filmmakers. A vast majority, I'd say, about eighty five percent of them that we deal with. We're dealing with bigger directors now in the last three or four editions, three or four years, but initially in the first three or four years, we were dealing mostly with first-time filmmakers who didn't really know to navigate this scenario and we didn't either so we kind of learned with them and held our hand a little bit and opened opportunities for them across outside of London so basically why we set this up was to make sure there was a kind of a social element and a like-minded gathering of freaks and misfits and all sorts of music nerds who come together and meet outside of their home mm-hmm. rather than being stuck at home as we are nowadays watching stuff online you know watching the uh, 
you know, VOD versions mm-hmm. of these films. So basically to give these films a proper airing as they should be in a, in a Dolby system, like with a big screen, yeah. you know, and we've definitely been successful on that. That's not easy, but the directors we've dealt with and we've reached out to, um, we've screened, they've been really appreciative of what we've put together. Because previously, like I said, at the initial opening, they might've gotten their foot in the door with one screening in London, if they were lucky. And that would be just the beginning end of it. Because those festivals couldn't give a damn about giving any life or legs to these films. It's just in and out. They're the program. They fuck off. See you later. Bye. Whatever. They couldn't even be answered, bothered answering any further questions as to help these people get in elsewhere, anywhere else. My whole thing of approaching directors is to gain a bit of rapport with them, uh, sit in a Skype with them for 40 minutes or an hour and win them over. Seven or eight months before we're screening with them to make sure that we have given them a good reason to come with us rather than to go with any old other better established festival with a strand of four or five films that I'll just say you're going to get lost in the program and these people wouldn't even bother sitting with you for half an hour and getting to know you even for that mm-hmm. amount of time. Uh, you know, so uh, we've always had a long vision in this in, in terms of the value of giving our own time, spending, you know, long hours during the week and weekends in like making contact with these uh, filmmakers and also for the, the long tail of them putting us in touch with their mates who they meet at other festivals and they're all just to kind of, you know, spread the word and they themselves coming back with other films three or four years after that, you know. So we have over the years, like after I think I'm four, year four, we started to do semi-theatrical across the UK and Ireland, which meant that we weren't just screening at our festivals, which at that stage was London plus five or six other UK city festivals, but we were also screening outside of that at maybe seven or eight other cinemas that had gained our confidence and they were happy to for us to do some minor distribution with them. Since we did that now we're doing kind of bigger theatrical distribution in the realm of 50 to 75 screens for certain documentaries about three or four per year as well it's kind of grown out of that you know and now we have a vod service as well with 40 docs on it that is globally available on demand so you know we that itself as well you know it kind of all grew little by little struggle by struggle over seven or eight years seven years you know the whole reason for me starting this band was because i was fucking bored being like After all these years in rock and roll, all we needed was brutal honesty from an angry looking man in Bristol. As you progressed over the years and as the uh, the name's gotten a little bigger and the festival's gotten a little bigger, have you found more directors and filmmakers have actually been approaching you or do you find that you're still having to really search out and dig and or is it a combination of both still? Yeah, yeah, it's still a combination of both, but, you know, the ratio has shifted yeah. ma- massively where, you know, for the first two years, we didn't have some freeway or any other platform to submit to. And I was just literally most of my work was involved in scouring the Internet, Facebook, particularly for these films up and coming, that Facebook pages, hitting people up and just doing a lot of research across other festivals to kind of pick and choose bits and pieces of data that other festivals would be showing and to mm-hmm. put them all together. But we launched our film freeway page probably on the third edition. And, and did okay on that got about 60 submissions to features I was probably like still me 70% of the time looking for these films and 30% input coming into us and right. yeah it's just like a word of, word of mouth thing now we have had we're really strong now with uh, Film Freeway we had 121 feature submissions last year and right. 85 the year before and then 70 odd shorts 70 and 80 shorts around that and these days I'd probably be chasing myself about 
said 20% of the program and 80% coming in at me, which is great. So wow, yeah, yeah. So obviously the chasing involves the bigger films now, particularly, you know, and winning those directors and producers over as to why they should screen yeah. those over others. No? And that, you know, keeps it interesting, you know, it's just great to see it evolving and it's, it's always a challenge still to try and win these producers over, you know, when they, they don't see the profile being worthwhile versus what they can get out of another festival. So it's all about that charm and kind of with <laughs> just, you know, laying it up, uh, going, look, you can screen with these guys, but they're gonna, that's the end of your story. You're not going to travel anywhere. We, we can offer you like 17, 18, 20 screenings if you come with us, you know. So that's one of the main reasons why the festivals hate us, you know, because <laughs> they can't do that. They couldn't be bothered doing that. But uh, they won't they won't try and challenge us on it. They just hate us for it, you know what I mean? <laughs> Rather than them rolling their sleeves up themselves and going out and doing it, you know. Yeah, yeah. They, just, they just really hate the fact that we have this niche and it totally undermines their whole program now in that, in that section that they were extremely comfortable in because they just can't, they can't fight back because this couldn't be bothered in one hand and the heads of those wrestlers don't see the value in it. So <laughs> it's a win-win it's, for us, you know. Yeah, and that's their problem, isn't it? If they're not prepared to actually, like you say, roll their sleeves up and do Absolutely. some work, then what, Absolutely. You know, the, the space completely, was wide open yeah. for you to step in and do it, wasn't it? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely, it's their problem. Yeah. But, you know, it's you know, the grocery is, is endless, you know. You'll find yeah. it wherever you look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's that kind of, it's that kind of silliness that, that keeps us going sometimes as well. You know, you always need, you need to have somebody to kick against, you know. You need to have your nemesis, otherwise you lose the fun aspect of it all. It's too easy. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And that's what these people are suffering from because they never have a challenge. And in mm-hmm. the vast majority of cases, they're working for somebody else who doesn't give a damn, whereas we're working for ourselves. And obviously sure, yeah. We give yeah. That's their frustration from being trapped in that scenario where they, they really want to put it up against us, but the, those above them don't see the, the purpose or their reason to do so. But, you know, we were quite happy where we are. We always had planned to do some online elements, but it's it's obviously taken a whole other priority now in the last year with the closures. But sure, yeah, we, I was going to ask you about we, that, yeah. We set out to maintain and to bring people together with after parties and, you know, DJ sets and kind of local gigs associated with the theme of the films and all of that. But inevitably, we had a lot of people coming at us going, listen, how can I see that film you showed last year or two years ago? I can't find it anywhere. And in most cases, I know that they're available, but the people who are asking me are just haven't bothered looking at probably Google for long enough to find what they're looking for. <laughs> and they don't know the title and that kind of thing. So we knew it was inevitable that we'd set up some elements of online. So it was like it was a bit of a no brainer to kind of facilitate those people, particularly the, the big fans in the cities that we reach to who can't come to see everything. Because some of our programs in London in particular, like we'd have 31 or two features every November for a headline festival. So you can only see four, five, six, seven, eight, eight maximum, I'd say, of those films if you're a super fan. So it's like great to be able to set up this channel that it would facilitate people who just, you know, have that enthusiasm but obviously can't see everything in our program, you know. You know, we always set it up as a, as a slow burn in the background, you know, but we actually had, had set it up a year and a half ago. So it was good that prior to COVID, we already had 12 films up there available, you know. Yeah, you find that interest in the the, the dock and roll TV has just spiked massively in the last year then or yeah well 
And it's a grower as well, because like I said, we set it up there in the background and we didn't have, we don't have much marketing behind yeah. it. Our biggest expense or any festival's biggest expense is marketing and PR, you know? So it's the biggest, largest chunk of our budget for our festivals is, is marketing. And we had nothing for the TVOD really, because we had to concentrate on the live aspect. You know, that's where it went. And we were going to word of mouth it all the way through our 14 city branches and work it that way, you know, and let that kind of groundswell over two years it. But obviously we couldn't do that when COVID hit and that was, we hadn't done anything beyond social push on it, newsletter push. Mm-hmm. So we obviously reorientated our funds and started and put some pure publicity behind Dock and Roll TV while we added another 20 something titles to it over the summer. So around April, we started pushing it hard and we had had 12, 12 titles on it were UK and Ireland only. And then we opened up the rest of our acquisitions to worldwide, which really helped because funnily enough, we have like a lot of people reading our newsletter in the States for some reason, even though we've never done any public screenings there. So we're pulling like viewers from the US for documentaries that are available in the US and other platforms, which I'm quite happy and proud of it. That's kind of bizarre, but that's we obviously built a kind of a reputation amongst these Uber fans of music that we're checking out. And once, once we are able to offer them something online, they snap it up it's great and now we're reaching uh, 26 countries so that's kind of funny reaching that's incredible isn't it that's really good got lots of random stuff you know we've obviously got you know our biggest would be uk and then we've got germany australia france us Canada, maybe the biggest, and then some Scandinavian, and then just oddball stuff like Lithuania, Latvia, and like, you know, all random Croatia, mm-hmm. whatever. No, it's a pretty funny. It's kind of interesting to see how far we've reached with. So, one of the funny things is that as well, that vast majority of our program is available elsewhere. We don't, we only have an exclusive on one title at the moment out of 40. So, these are widely available, maybe widely available as an exaggeration, but they're available on, on several platforms in these people's home countries, but they just don't know about them, you know. Well, these I guess things. the fact you you have them all in one spot as well totally helps, yeah, doesn't it? You, yeah. you know, you can yeah, on board yeah, to yeah, find yeah. one thing yeah. and find 15 yeah. other things that you're interested in, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, 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 that's it. Like, but the problem with this kind of structure is that because we're pay-as-you-go and, like, on demand, you have to continually remind people that you exist, and that's the biggest experience sure. involved. TVOD, you know, what the transactional VOD rather than subscription VOD, because once you have somebody's credit card details, does and a monthly subscription generally people forget to <laughs> unsubscribe even though they're not they're not watching the the content which is a, is a constant earner for you but when you come out from the other side of things which is pretty cheap to set up the biggest expense is continually reminding people that you exist or trying to find a newer audience which costs a lot of money you know a lot of expense so we got some really good coverage in April last year across enemy and time out London uh, we got into the BFI's magazine thought and sound which is a real cool and that really kind of grew our fan base and then we got covered by Italian and French publicity as well which is surprising That's me, Stefan I spent my childhood between Mixing Desk and Menor Our farm was always chock full of musicians The music they recorded is the soundtrack of my youth and my father the conductor Let's talk a little bit about the films themselves. One thing that Bernie and myself and our 
compadre Tim, who is just on a bit of a break at the moment. But one thing that we always discovered over the last few years is that music documentaries seem to just be exploding. I mean, yeah, we sort of remember back to the 70s and, you know, the, the music documentaries would be focused then, or the 70s or the 80s, I should say, would be focused on whatever the big studios would want to look at. It might be like Dylan and the Band or The Rolling Stones, God knows how many documentaries about them there are. But like now, with the last 20, 30 years with technology being so much cheaper and maybe the history of contemporary music has gotten a lot older so there's a lot more subject ground to cover but you know we've found that there have been some really fantastic documentaries that sort of go through wider ground it's not just about the music so like we did this film Two Train Running which had a wider story about the civil rights movement as well as music The Devil and Daniel Johnson which was about mental health and looking on your channel you've yeah. got uh, films like Boom For Real about uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat uh, so looking about the New York yeah. art scene and the ambiguity yeah. of David Thomas Brown about experimentality and <laughs> rockable, which I, I think that might even be an Australian directed film. Uh, it is, yeah. About it the is, difficulties yeah. of being a metal band in Afghanistan under Taliban rules. We are using our music. We just want to play in front of thousands of guys and girls who come together. They cheer and say, yeah, this is true, this works, and we have this kind of idea too. So you're seeing wider stories rather than just a biography of a particular band. So I guess rather long-winded way of sort of like asking, what do you specifically look for in a film? I mean, you went and said that you had last year 121 submissions and you obviously couldn't take them all. So what were you looking for? Oh, it's a combination of many things. But yeah, you're right. This has been an explosion. That's, I mean, that's why we exist and why we set ours. It was easy for us to set ourselves up seven years ago, eight years ago, because of the content that was coming out. One thing, I think one of the key things there is like, you know, the cheaper technology, but also the platforms, funding platforms, you know. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of our selections that come into us are from crowdfunded platforms from Indiegogo or Kickstarter, you know. Mm -hmm. um, with that revolution, these filmmakers would never get a chance to make their films because by and large, like I said earlier, they're first time filmmakers. They're more like uber fans with access or these people who just happen to have access for one reason or another. But they would never get funded by the funding bodies like IDFA or IDA or Sundance Institute. They wouldn't have a hope in hell. Like, it's like, forget about it, you know? By the way, the only things that are getting bloody funded by those type of sources these days, like the Grierson Trust, it's just issues to it LGTB, which is great, you know, fair enough. Politics in terms of the crazy scenario we're in at the world at the moment, in terms of ridiculous political sphere we're, we're in, and environmental collapse of the planet. Those three things, that's it, end of, end of story, you know. So even now, it's, it's quite difficult to get funded outside of the realm of these Kickstarters and Indiegogos and that. So that revolution really opened the floodgates, you know, for better or worse, because obviously there's a lot of access and filmmakers, filmmakers making films that are actually rubbish, like, you know, and then a decent filmmaker won't touch that subject again because they just will never get funded beyond it, you know. So it, it has its, its pros and cons, but they're mostly, absolutely mostly 
pros in terms of allowing these people, you know, to follow their passion, to remortgage their house, sell their car and all the rest to make a film over eight, ten years at their favorite scene or in their favorite town or whatever. You know, it's like that kind of thing. So what we look for generally is because what I mentioned previously is our big expense of marketing. So we need to have a film that already has a grassroots following somewhere online. That's one thing, apart from the obvious intrigue in the central character or central scene, the ability to tell a story well in ideally under 85 minutes. I have a massive aversion to films that have to go over 90 minutes to tell the story because I'm saying, God damn, great story, great access. But why do, you know, if you can't tell a story in 90 minutes, you're just a shit storyteller, you know? You don't know how to edit <laughs> your story, right? You're just a fucking long-winded fart, you know? Fuck <laughs> off. Um, so to keep the shit for the extras, man, there's so much bullshit out there where they go into like two hours and two hours, five minutes. So for me, it has to appeal, which is a tangent of that. The film has to appeal beyond the central focus of that music scene or music fan base as well, you know? Which is why I'm continually, repeatedly telling people, just can you slim your film down and keep those really nerdy bits for the extras that because in general you're really cutting off your fan base by you know expanding the story to cover every goddamn band member that ever existed in the band or every album and remix that was made of every track so it's got to be focused you know and it's got to have a good structure that you know you can leave people wanting more rather than flooding them with information and just kind of going with so much filler you know so it's a bit structure really being able to tell a good story and in hopefully gotta be in a cinematic angle on it can't be just fly in the wall stuff that just doesn't have a good sound mix and doesn't have a potential for it to be really come to life on a big screen or a good sound system which the ability we have now in the online scene and these hybrid festivals and doing a, a live and online version has opened us up to showing films that we couldn't show before so we can show those not non-cinematic films that just never had the budget to do a good sound mix and all the rest we can we can actually facilitate that stuff now which was quite frustrating sometimes four or five years ago when we didn't have that where some films are great but they just didn't have enough finance behind them or enough intelligence in, in terms of favors being pulled left right and center to get good sound mixes in for them to justify them to be in a cinema but we generally we need it we need some kind of fan base on facebook or instagram or twitter that we can leverage into our own socials and, and boost the awareness of the film beyond that like because it's very difficult to start with a film with no awareness anywhere because essentially you just have to pay for that marketing out there and it becomes a self-defeating thing you can't spend like three four five hundred per film when you're already making that or less than that on the box office so it's that it's that kind of thing you know it has to be a combination of those things intriguing not too left to field you know left to field but some connection working with some mainstream artists somewhere along the line in their collaborations or that kind of thing you know we can work with films that are really left to field if they have a strong grassroots following on facebook already three or four or five thousand followers that kind of thing i don't know whether you get this sort of feedback but do you find that you get audiences for some films where the music has no appeal to that audience at all but they find the story intriguing so like for instance i noted that one of your films is the allens one hell of a family everybody knew where the stone was they were coming from canada you don't want people to come from canada and piss on shit all over your grave about 
Gigi Allen's family. I mean, I think the first film that we ever covered on this podcast was Hated, the Gigi Allen story. His music is not my thing. I hadn't even heard of him before we covered it. And that's going back like eight years ago or something like that. But I found his story absolutely fascinating. Are you finding that people contacting you and saying, I had no idea who Gigi Allen was, or I have no idea who Jean-Michel Basquiat is, but I find this a really fascinating story. Does story override the fan base of the music? Yeah, no. Not to the extent that we hoped it would, because <laughs> we're finding frustratingly more so in the initial years change a little bit as our fan base and our audience has grown in size and breadth. Uh, but yeah, we do get a lot of people coming up to us in, and usually it's directly after the film or maybe on Twitter or Instagram within 24 hours of seeing the film. Yeah, they come and go, wow, I, my mate invited me along to this. I, know I don't like this music scene at all, but I found that really intriguing. Like, yeah, stuff like Connie Plank, Potential and Noise. Like, you know, I mean, it's a film about a producer of mid mid to late 70s, like left to field Kraftwerk, Noi and all of that stuff that became more popular with your remix and that kind of thing. But like just kind of oddball stuff that they themselves would not see on the radar at all never listen to on the radio or anything that is an element that I'd hoped would have been stronger in the early days but it's definitely showing its head now we discovered to our surprise or to our ignorance that a lot of fans are just they just don't give a damn you know they just want to know want to see the film about their favorite rock artist and that's the end of the story you know and that would probably have been about 80 percent of our audience four or five years ago uh very difficult to get them to cross over into other things that we're showing because we were trying to build a brand and a, a reputation for to take a risk on what we're showing you don't know anything about it that because of the pedigree of our previous curations that you know be worth taking the gamble on so that has been taken us longer to achieve than we thought but thankfully it's taking shape now where we're probably looking at 50-50 on that now in terms of our audience 50% of our audience are willing to go with us and, and take gambles on our program and as our program has become broader as well like because initially we started out just showing kind of alternative rock punk bit of hip hop and bits and pieces but we've gone over the seven years right into jazz and extreme metal and all sorts of like you know house techno everything electronic and that so it's been interesting, but it's been a slower take up than we thought on that front. But I'd be glad to say that that is taking shape. Do you think that's because younger people's taste in music is changing? Morris and I are old farts. We've been around long enough that when we were younger, we kind of remember it. It was kind of youth tribes. You were either a punk or you were a goth yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Whereas uh, yeah. it seems that young people nowadays, because of the ubiquity of music on the internet and social media, it seems that younger people have just a much broader taste in music so is that feeding into it do you think yeah i'd say there's definitely an element of that there but i would say probably what happened with us initially our audience was slightly older than that to begin with but it's become younger over the last three to four years which i'm very happy to say because i'd say our average age uh when we started out seven years ago is probably about 40 and like you know obviously we'd have the 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 odd the odd the odd teenagers and the odd ones in the early 20s or late 20s but the vast majority was like 42, 60, which has a lot to do with like the history of music coming of age around that, like, you know, in terms of the stories like Morris was explaining in terms of the appeal of these films. But yeah, I'd say that definitely has shown its 
had in the last three years, a younger audience that we're continually trying to reach are hearing about us and are coming and do have a broader taste, like you mentioned. Absolutely. Yeah. I think they can kind of connect the dots out there now much easier than we sure, could, yeah. you know, because, you know, I myself, I'm not my time in my 40s. I would have loved to have had the access that people have now in the last 10 years to all of these uh, genres of music because I was hearing stuff when I was 16 and going and never hearing anything like that again for about four years until I hit yep. that scene in, in Dublin and be able to, to access like interesting you know, Chicago House, that kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. I hear, like, one Chicago House track, in, like, when I was 16 and nothing, and it took me four years to find a venue playing that music. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. I, the, the kind of envy I have of, of everything being at their fingertips now. Of course, there's a mountain of noise out there obscuring it as well. But you know how it was. I mean, you spend, you, you got very little cash when you're yeah, a teenager. Yeah, yeah. You, you got a part time job and you're, you're buying a CD and the CD's got to fucking last you two months. <laughs> You know, that's right. Yeah, you know that was very frustrating for me. You know, because uh, yeah. I knew, you know, you you find your tribe eventually. About my tribe was always pretty more open because I was always into initially into a bit of everything, alternative rock. You know, I came up under Nirvana and all of that, like you know, and then yeah, a bit yeah. of a bit of this and that. And, but like, I always had a taste for electronic music as well because I came up under that around the nineties, the mid nineties as well. So being able to access all that music though, I could only afford the you know to buy the you know your communication and not take a chance on the left of field techno yeah, album. I remember <laughs> you know, that kind of as well, yeah, exactly the yeah, same, yeah. yeah. It just has massively hit, to say the least, the pockets of the creators, but it's, it's incredible to have that access now and it definitely is filtering through and it is supporting our whole kind of thing of reaching these new, younger audiences. Because actually one of the key points of BFI funding that we get to do the, the regional tours, so we didn't, don't get any funding for London because it's considered to be overfunded and, and spoiled rotten, which is uh, <laughs> is a bit of a, an overstatement in terms of the titles that we screen. But we get funding to tour uh, to the UK cities outside of London. And one of the priorities is reaching younger audiences to backfill. The key audiences for alternative independent cinema now is the typical you know, mid 40s to mid 60s. And there's a crisis there, you know, with the online access of backfilling and reaching the, the 19 to 23 year olds and getting them into yeah. the cinema while cinema still exists. <laughs> that was before COVID hit. So, you know, it's that's a critical thing as well. Like, I mean, it's, it's, that's a fundamental drive of, of making sure that there's an audience there for alternative artist cinema in, 10, in 15 years' time. It's make sure you try and get and grab the 20 year old now, you know. And that's making it, it's making it easier for us for that reason that, like you said, there is access to that music to, to make the connections, connect the dots and see that mm-hmm. a lot of these genres overlap in terms of maybe not on first look, but definitely from the production side of thing and the producers are working on the albums and their own breadth of taste and influence and how they can make a great album because they have that breadth of influence from other genres. Younger people are seeing those dots, whereas the 50 year olds couldn't be bothered, you know, aren't interested yeah, yeah. Or, or blinkered, you know, that would be good kind of analysis of our audience where we're, we're looking 50-50 now and that. You mentioned COVID. Do you have any plans post-COVID? Let's say 2021, we know there's not going to be any magic formula despite the vaccine rollout. This is going to be with us for a few years. But let's say some things return to some level of normality in 2021 or post-2021. What are the plans cinematically for Doc and Roll? Like, you know, ideally, if everything was available to you. We were on the cusp of a 14 
the UK tour in March. We'd already spent our PR funding on the first four cities of that four-month tour. That was 95 screenings booked and, and confirmed across 14 cities across four months. That was disastrous for us for that to be cancelled when we'd already spent in the marketing in the first four cities. Mm. Like, I mean, we're determined to resurrect that and to make sure that we can continue to build on those cities that we'd only recently visited. We have a core base on probably seven cities, and then we were reaching another seven that we'd only started to reach out to do a little bits and pieces with. But it's key for us to maintain the social structure of what we set up and make sure that these live events continue to happen. And now, obviously, we will have a tandem of the online thing always now from now on. But we're determined to get back out there. And I don't don't want to make a big deal of it, but like, you know, cinemas are struggling even when they're open these days for content, you know, because the distributors are holding back their medium to large films. Like, So I think it's critical that even in our small way, we can bring content to these more obscure towns and cities with interesting cinemas that are on their knees now with don't have the content to screen even when they can find a window within the COVID scenario to, 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 to screen again. So another thing which is drastic on the horizon is the collapse of these 200-odd independent cinemas across the UK that the BFI has now restructured all its funding to save. Like So we don't have any touring funding at the moment because of it being reorientated to save the cinemas, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. So in the initial period, initial moment, these next seven or eight months, but we're determined to get back out there and expand our physical reach to as many cities and towns that will take us because even just with that structure that we'd reached seven to eight, ten cities two years ago, we had started, like I mentioned, to do semi-theatrical. So we will continue on the back of that to reach more cities, not in our physical kind of four-day, five-day festival with lots of Q&As and all that, but at least get the films out there to their audiences as a distributor, you know? So we've obviously expanded our different income streams by little over the three or four years. So we are now focused on making sure we, we distribute three to four films per year. For obvious financial reasons, but obviously, but also to help filmmakers out who aren't getting any interest from larger distributors, you know, and are falling between the gaps. So we see there's a market there as well. And obviously to build Docromal TV from its current 40 titles up to something in a region of 65 or 70, you know, over the next two years. And also to reorganize the whole structure of our Docromal TV offer, because at the moment it's in a really beta mode. It doesn't have any, any it's very basic. Like, you know, we, we want to uh, build on that and, and reorganize the site so that we have like a really easy to use platform easier to navigate rather than it's a bit of crate digging at the moment there's no sure it's not subdivided by anything to say the least so we thought it was most important to get it out there set it up over the last year and we'll deal with all those restructuring when we have a little bit more time and income on our hands to actually do it and finesse the site you know but we uh, also screen across EU festivals at the moment that we help our directors who come to to us and we screen with them we offer them access to all our network across the eu and across the states as well and uh, south america that we have contacts with but primarily across european festivals that we have mates in and um, collaborators uh, with you know the acquaintances of you know between you know cph docs and rotterdam and all those kind of festivals that have these 
alternative music strands within them. We've built camaraderie and that kind of thing between them. So that's what we're determined to do. It's on three or four different fronts there, but we're determined to, to make sure that we, if the cinemas exist in a year's time, but we'll be there in the UK to support them, like in mm-hmm. Glasgow and Manchester and Bristol and Sheffield, Leeds, you know, and some of the more left-of-field towns like Reading and, and Exeter and smaller kind of smaller population towns. So, yeah, it's just onwards, you know, as far as we can survive, you know, because we look like I'm just happy to be able to be talking to you about this now as, as an ongoing concern because last May it looked like we were going to have to pull the plug on everything, you know. Wow. It just, Man. yeah, yeah, yeah. 95 meanings, like a serious thing, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, mean we, I know we're all in the same boat here. I mean, theatre's fucked, comedy's fucked, like, you know, uh, to everyone, small music promoters who we have a lot of mates in that world are completely screwed, you know, because yeah. these venues, particularly the live music venues, already had economic incentive of all the, the, the building construction development going on around them, shutting down venues because of noise pollution, all this kind of bullshit to deal with before they had COVID, you know, and now they're just absolutely on their knees. So I'm obviously very concerned of where the general arts market's going to be in 12 months time at all, let alone our small little niche, you know. For any of our listeners who've been listening to this conversation and think, all right, I think I'm going to go check out that dock and roll website. I want to uh, subscribe to something VOD. And as you say, that's fortunate, that's worldwide. That's not geo-blocked. So thank goodness for that. Someone comes along and says, right, I've listened to that interview. I'm going to go search out that website. Name me two or three of your favorites. And I know, I know that you're behind this website. They're like all your babies. But what would be two or three films that have absolutely knocked you out? Let's say over the last 12 months, a couple of films that uh, you could recommend. L7 is one of my top five anyway of my favorite music docs. Pretend We're Dead about the the grunge band from like 91, 92, 93. It's a, it's a great story of vitality and determination, resilience from uh, these four women who came up in the shadow of Nirvana and were hanging out mates with all of that grunge team at the time. People assume that you're raking in the cash if you're on the cover of Spin magazine, but unless you sell an insane amount of records, you're really just a working stiff at best. It's like it says that it's a rags to riches to rags story. <laughs> but, uh, it's a vital story of determination, particularly from the from the point of view of you know the misogynistic you know yeah. rock scene and music scene world of business and then um, the triumphing over all of that at the end of the day. It's a great story because it mostly revolves around their own private uh, you know home movies that they shot in high eight around their U.S. and European tours in the in the early nineties. So it's, 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 it's pretty funny behind the scenes stories there with Nick Caves briefly in it as well. And all these kind of backstage shenanigans. That's a great one. A bunch of cunts, a film about sleeper mods is a great one as well. If you were on like £15 a week and you turn the telly on and some fuckers spouting on about love, you know, with a guitar in the middle of a forest, yeah. I mean, that's just shit. You've heard of Seafood Mods, or you're, you're familiar with them a little bit, or? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it. That's a fantastic film. I love the vitality behind that as well. A couple of more unusual ones that are very popular with us is Sunra, A, a Joyful Noise. I have many names. Some call me Mr. Ra. Others call me Mystery. You can call me Mr. Mystery about the 
the jazz experimental f- freestyle uh, lunatic whose ensemble is still going to this day but that's just a free jazz new fusion bebop boogie woogie all sorts of craziness going on in that film and, and a lot of people are seeking that one out because they can't find it elsewhere it's funny it's very popular even though it, it, it was released over 20, uh, 20 year, odd years ago originally shot in the 80s but it wasn't well it was only on VHS for quite some time a really funny one I like you know it's always nice to have a bit of humour involved when people not taking themselves too seriously is something I look out for as well is Murder in the Front Row I don't know if you've seen that one on the San Francisco Bay Area trash metal story people have a passion for the metal there's no distinction between the bands and the fans we called it the land of misfit toys people in our scene we felt invincible it was about survival it was like ah Exodus had the destruction recipe if Exodus was playing we were there that's all they are yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. Like, it doesn't take itself too seriously at all. Like, you know, it's all about doing the, the real, you know, the trash metal fans versus the hair metal dudes who are posers <laughs> and all of that struggle. It seems, it seems absolutely ridiculous, uh, uh, like, 40 years later, almost 40 years later. But it's, it's a very funny story of, like, the real metal fans versus the dudes who are just trying to look cool and, and um, you know, trying to pull girls, like, at the, at the scene. Yeah, that, that's a great one. Like, it's the foundations of metal. Metallica, Megadeth, uh, Anthrax, and all that, like, you know, particularly um, Metallica. So it's interesting to see where the seed of that global from the rock phenomenon now came from, you know? So the one you mentioned previously, Ambiguity, David Thomas Broughton. He's a surreal performer. I like to say that he's like a combination of Richard Thompson and Buster Keaton. He's terrifying. Unpredictable, difficult, erratic, and somewhat confrontational sometimes. I mean, I had no idea about him whatsoever until I saw this film. I think that film in particular, stylistically, is beautiful. It, it puts some really good work into telling a difficult story about a really oddball character. I always like to highlight films that are take a different approach to standard, you know, Wikipedia. I'd never heard of him, but I watched the trailer and I thought, oh, that is definitely one I've got to uh, earmark for a full viewing. He looks like yeah, quite a character. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He spent some time in North Korea of all places <laughs> working as an English teacher so he has all sorts of stuff going on in his background that is not directly affected to the music but really interesting character yeah so yeah the Gil Scott Heron one as well Black Wax is very popular on our channel that's very difficult to find for some reason I don't know why because I know it's available out there elsewhere but people are uh, flooded in once we started screening that one about a year ago I think one of the issues one of the good things about how we built our name over seven years that we show up really well on Google and like SEO, you know, in terms of the films might be out there, but we get the first mention of them on the first page and probably they're out there on the second page elsewhere. We just get a jump on that because of the amount of different screenings we've had over the years. It's kind of reached out into the algorithms are showing us up more so than others, you know, so that's great. A band called Death's a good one. It's a funny one as well. Yeah, uh, I've seen that one. That's pretty good. Uh, Death yeah, by Metal, uh, yeah, yeah. And then The Allens, of course, which you mentioned earlier, yes. is a great... <laughs> And I, to say the least, like yourself, I'm not into that scene. 
scene or that music and I find it almost difficult to call it music because really it's more performance art you know it's not yes. uh, music a bit of a whole other game you know in terms of it, it the noise <laughs> element of it <laughs> but that's a great one I mean the interaction between his brother and Gigi's brother and their mother it's, it's just hilarious it's just brilliant I love that it's heartwarming you know that kind of thing another one actually which is our only exclusive title which is well we're checking out is Manchester Keeps on Dancing which is 40 year profile of the beginnings of the dance scene Chicago house entering Manchester and Manchester really foisting that in the late 70s early 80s on the scene before London well like a good year before London caught on to it like and then how that has evolved over the decades not just from the Hacienda scene itself but how it's built out from Manchester back into Detroit and back into Chicago and then via Berlin and how the, those dots are connected around these music cities how it's still going strong there in Manchester you know it's, it's great it's got some really good contributors to that story. I'll add one or two to that that aren't available on our site that I'd just like to flag. As one, of, one of my favourites is the Edwin Collins one from Orange Juice, Possibilities Are Endless. Have you seen that one? Oh, from that's a good one. Yes, yeah, I have seen that. Yeah, That's a great one. And that really fits the bill in terms of taking a different approach and not just a yeah. bunch of talk heads and archive. It's done beautifully in terms of its dramatic recreation. And Where You're Meant to Be, have you seen that one? That Scottish, oh, what's the guy from Arab Strath? I can't remember his name, but... Uh, oh, Aidan Moffat. Is it Aidan Moffat? following Aidan Moffat, yeah. yeah, around the kind of the traditional folk of the 40s, 50s, and 60s of Scottish folk, and how he's got this woman who's, uh, you know, big within that scene, and how he's playing around with her life story versus his. And it, it's a beautiful telling of camaraderie within two completely different scenes, like their whole music scene being an ironic piss take of everything, and her being so sincere about, you know, folk music. I think it just works beautifully that that one and he's such a character you know, that's, that's a great one we don't have that one either that's another great one then Rude Boy the story of Trojan Records I've seen that one that's terrific it's beautifully made I mean the reconstruction and that generally you know reconstruction is just red flag no no it's going to just fall flat in its face and it usually does I mean absolutely in this case it's an exception that I've seen like I know myself I can talk to the director and I understand why it's so successful because they spent over a hundred grand on the recreation itself of those yeah. uh, dancing yeah, so I mean, that was a big budget. That was a BMG film, like, you know, via Trojan, right. the own Trojan. But that's a beautiful film, well worth seeking as. And to David Crosby coming at the same stable, David Crosby, Remember My Name, is the film we screened as well last year. Ruboy did really well for us as well. And BMG put together a David Crosby film as well, as well worth checking out. It's him reflecting on the last 50 years of his life and what an absolute asshole he was to the vast majority. Particularly the women. You know, particularly the women, like a, just an absolute prick. And it's kind of his shot at redemption, really, you know, because he knows he doesn't have that many years left. And it's kind of an interesting perspective from that angle. There's some of my, some of my favorites, anyway. Well, we just want to say a huge thank you to you. We'll be putting up uh, links to the website and the show notes when we put this show up. But this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for uh, oh. taking the time to speak to us, Colin. No worries. Thanks for having me, mate. It's been fun. Cheers. Have a, 
have a, yeah, have a thank you. This is such a great endeavor, and you know, music documentaries—that's what we do, or part of what we do. So, yeah, it was just a godsend to be able to find you. Great. Well, I appreciate you uh, for, uh, reaching out to me. Like, I know you—I see you have had some some Rob Curry and a few other people that I know from the scene have been on yes. your show before. So, yeah, it was interesting for me to find you guys as well. So, yeah, thanks very much, Colin. Uh, Bernie and I will be back in a moment to talk about next month's show. See you here, eighty-three. We'll be back in a moment. Try and try, try and try. You succeed at last. Persecution, you must fear. We don't lose the battle, get to shield. You've got your mind set on a Once again, our huge thanks to Colm Ford of the Dock and Roll Film Festival. We'll put some links up in the show notes for uh, this podcast. Feel free to go search it out if you live in the UK. Please keep an eye out for hopefully when the festival does become a thing again after this nasty COVID bug decides to uh, piss off after we can vaccinate it out into the ether. But in the meantime, they have a lot of fine films on their VOD service. So go check them out. Episode 83 coming to you next month. That'll be March of 2021. As we said at the start of the show, our beloved Tim Merrill is going to be back on the program. He's been working his ass off for the last few months for a uh, career change. He may talk about that on next month's show, but he'll be back and talking with us about music films. So we thought, well, since he's been away for a few months, we thought we'd give him the pleasure of selecting our film for next month. And I had a chat with him yesterday and he said to me, he's gone and nominated the film that I've sort of wanted to see for a long while, but it never came into my sphere. I don't think it's on a streaming service and I don't know where the DVD was, but we'll find it. The film is called Black Snake Moan with Samuel L. Jackson and Christina Ricci. So we'll be talking a little bit of blues music and a little bit of chaining up for you on uh, next month's episode <laughs> of the show. Is it one that you've seen before, Betty? Do you know, I, I'm fully aware of it, but like yourself, I've never gotten around to it. So that will be interesting. Two first-timers uh, talking about that. So, yeah, that's good. Yeah, looking forward to seeing that film and very much looking forward to listening to the soundtrack. That was actually how the film came to my attention years ago was I saw the CD soundtrack. I thought, oh, I should buy this and then didn't and still haven't seen the film but it comes with the tim stamp of approval so um looking forward to talking about that next month if you wish to join the facebook group for see here you go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here we are part of the pantheon podcast network our uh, gratitude to them for letting us play in their sandbox lots of other wonderful podcasts out there i think they're up to about 65 different podcasts in their network and they're all music related so how good is that you've got a vod service to watch your music related films and you've got a great podcast network to listen to your music related podcasts that's fantastic if you want to write us an email see here podcast at gmail.com instagram we are at see here podcast so uh, do follow us there for the occasional pictures and uh, amusing things that i post so you'll have some nice dock and roll related photos this month i will yes yeah so until next month when tim returns look after 
each other, listen to some great podcasts, listen to some wonderful music, watch some films, music related or not, just generally be nice to each other, wear masks, hopefully get vaccinated if you're in a part of the world that's started doing it, hasn't started here yet, don't know what they're waiting for, be nice to each other and look after each other. All the best. Cheers. Stay safe, everyone. Cheers. They said another brother's day. The city's dead But it can't be buried now They said he's dead But it can't be buried now He said come on, come on, come on, come on This can't be buried It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.